Well, this is a, uh, a huge day today. There is uh, Groundhog Day. There is uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, the biggest thing, of course, is this is also uh, John Grabiel's birthday as he tries to run away. So um, let's... Uh, I have never seen 45 look so good. Um, just kidding, John. Um, very young. Good. Sisters and brothers, before we begin, let me just say a couple things. I want to um, thank those of you who, when I'm kind of out and about uh, around the town of Zionsville, have been very kind to come and, um, and introduce themselves to me. I want you to know that I, I will know you and recognize you uh, much more easily if I see you outside of this place. So when people are kind of coming through at the end, it's great to say hi, but, but, but thank you uh, for those of you who, uh, who uh, have the courage to just come up and say, hi, how you doing? And um, that's great. So thank you for that. Um, secondly, I, I want to say there, there were two things that came out of last Sunday's service that I was really deeply appreciative of. Um, the first was that many of you seemed very interested in Goonies, uh, and so, uh, so that was great. Uh, for those of you who happened to watch Goonies this week and, and, and you hated it, uh, tell my wife. Uh, for those of you who liked it, come tell me, okay? Um, but that was great. But, but even more important than that um, were the stories that I got to hear about people um, who, even though, as some were very honest to tell me afterwards, we didn't want to go up and talk to somebody we didn't know, uh, um, um, stories that came out of that, people who, who, who met each other, um, who wouldn't have met each other, older folks who were able to meet some youth, uh, people who were able to meet someone from an old hometown that they didn't know, uh, people, even one story of somebody who had gone here for 30 years, who met somebody who'd gone here for 10 years and had never seen them before, or at least never remembered having seen them before. And so that is phenomenal. And here's what I want you to know. We're, we're not going to practice that today uh, corporately, but I want to encourage you to practice this each and every Sunday, to find somebody you do not know or do not recognize and go up and tell them, this is who I am, who are you? I'd like just to hear a little bit more about you, okay? Can I get an amen to that? That was pretty good. One more time. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. All right. All right. We have to be a welcoming community. And if one of the things that Jesus has done has received us with grace and with open arms, then surely our call, a part of it at least, is to also welcome those whom we perhaps do not know and let them know that they are loved by us and by God. All right. Colossians. We're diving even further in this week, and we're going into the second chapter. And this uh, Sunday, we'll be looking at the sixth verse through the 15th verse. So I invite you to either read along or just simply to listen as we hear uh, the words that Paul has written to the people of Colossae. Paul writes, As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ." 
For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ." When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the challenges that come into play whenever you're trying to understand the epistles, any of Paul's letters, is that we really are only hearing from one side of the story. So in in the stories that we oftentimes hear in, say, the Gospels, we get to hear from both sides, from Peter and Jesus, or or, or Peter and and one of the other disciples, but we always get to hear from, from both perspectives. And when it comes to Paul, we don't really get that. We only hear from his side. And so for us to kind of try and understand what's going on with the people in in Rome or, or Ephesus or Colossae, we have to try to read into what Paul is saying. And sometimes that's easily done enough. Sometimes Paul will say, this is what's happening to you in Rome, and and here's what you should do. But, But other times, Paul is just simply kind of responding to some kind of correspondence or something he's heard, and it isn't quite as clear what's happening to the audience to whom he is writing the letter. And Colossians is very much of that latter sort. We don't oftentimes know exactly what's going on in Colossae. And that happens in this particular passage. Uh, uh, it, it begins to talk about, um, it, says, it says, don't be captivated by human tradition or, or philosophies or elemental spirits of the universe. And, and as I was trying to read up on what exactly that meant this week, I realized that that scholars thought lots of different things. They, some thought, well, this is clearly pointing to the Jewish tradition. Other, others thought, well, this is, this is some kind of ecstatic kind of tradition that, that, that we aren't familiar with. Others said, well, it's a particular kind of philosophy. And, and finally, one person who I really appreciated said with some refreshing honesty, we really have no idea what he's talking. And so I said, well, that's, that's helpful, but, uh, but so then when do we, how do we begin? And one of the things that we find out, of course, is that you don't have to begin with what you don't know. We can begin with what we do know. And so I want us to do just a, I want us to kind of hear this passage again, not the whole thing, just verses 8 through 12. And, and I, want, I want you to listen and tell me if you hear kind of a, a theme, maybe a, a one-word theme as we, as we look over that. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Christ, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In Christ also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ." When you were buried with Christ in baptism, you were also raised with Christ, who through faith in the power of God, who raised Christ from the dead. What is the topic of this passage? Now, it may have just been my inflection, and I'm sure that helped, but but surely we see here that the focus is on Christ. Paul is bringing up the centrality of Christ. We don't need that anymore. Thanks, Betsy. And so one of the things that you know, because you are now kind of budding scholars of Colossians, are you not? Having been here a few weeks? Good. Just say you are. You just say it with confidence. Absolutely. So, so as budding scholars, you know that this is not the first time that, that Paul's talked about the centrality of Christ. Earlier in the letter, he talks about the fact that, the, the, that, that all of creation was kind of held together by whom? By Christ. Christ is at the center of the whole world. And, and then we talked about the fact that it says, Paul says that Christ is the head and that we are the body and that Christ and Christ alone holds the church together. Remember that? And and today, Paul is expounding on that even more and saying not only is Christ at the center of the world and the church, he should be at your center. That because of faith and, and baptism, it is in Christ and Christ alone that our identity lies. It is in Christ and Christ alone where our meaning comes, where our value comes, that Christ is at the the center of us, that we don't need anything else for salvation, that Christ is sufficient. So this is how Paul is, is speaking out about us right now. Christ needs to be the center hold, which of course then begs the question, again, as good scholars, the follow-up question would be, what is it then that gets in the way of us allowing Christ to really be at the center and be our Lord? What is it that vies for competition, if you will, vies in, in our lives to be the center of our lives? What is it? What are those things which try and take over our identity, who say, no, your value and your meaning and your identity comes from this, not from Christ? Well, again, for the people of Colossae, we don't know, right? Those were those, those, those kind of those elements, those spiritual elements, all those other things that we don't know. But someone's pointed out, and I think rightfully so, that because we don't know for sure what it was for the Colossians, it means we can know or we can more openly perhaps begin to ask what it is for us. What are those things for us today that try and tear away Christ as being the center of who we are? Several of you have asked as you've kind of left the service what tradition it was in which I was raised. Now, uh, I'm guessing 
It's not because of a hairstyle or anything like that, but because of the way that I preach. And, and some of you, most of you, in fact, have guessed that I was raised Baptist. Right? Many of you shaking your head. Which I find somewhat humorous, because in the tradition in which I was raised, Baptists were barely Christian. <laughs> Can I get an amen? I'm just kidding. If you're Baptist, it's fine. <laughs> I was actually not raised in the Baptist tradition. I was raised in the Pentecostal tradition. My grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. Three of my uncles were Pentecostal preachers. My mother uh, is still in the Pentecostal church. Uh, My mom listens to this. Mom, I love you. Don't get angry. Um, I was raised in 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 that Pentecostal Tradition, And as I was thinking about that this week, and as I've been thinking about people asking me that question, I was, I was reminded of a, of a particular story, a particular Pentecostal story of mine. I was, uh, we were in Oklahoma City. I was just visiting it with a few of my uh, other college friends, all having been raised in the Pentecostal church we were. And, and we were there. We were going to be camp counselors uh, for a week for a buddy of ours who was a, a youth pastor there at a church in Oklahoma City. So we got in on Saturday night, and the next morning we, we go to worship. And <clears throat> we walk in. It was a huge sanctuary, sat several hundred at least. And, and we walked in, and I knew we were in trouble because my friend, for some reason, took us all the way down and we sat in the very front row. And Pentecostal 101 tells you this. If you don't want to actually get really involved in the service, do not sit up front. Getting nervous? (laughs) And sure enough, we were up front and, and about probably the third song or so, I saw somebody get up from the congregation, come up, and he was whispering something to the pastor And I knew it wasn't going to be good. And at the end of that song, he went and he grabbed the mic. And he said, last Friday night, and and he did it, I mean, it was Pentecostal. Last Friday night, I was drunk in the Holy Ghost. And I was laid out right here on this carpet for hours. And then he said, does anybody else here want to get drunk in the Holy Ghost today? Now, The people who were over here, who knew why they were sitting up front, and who wanted to be participants, oh, they were happy. I mean, they were jumping up and down. They were were waving their hands. Absolutely. The people over here, where we were, well, we knew that we couldn't just keep our hands in our pants, because the quickest way to get involved is to act like you don't want to get involved. So we clapped. That's what you do. Yeah, all right. Drunk. But it didn't work. Because he knew, and he came down, and he could tell, it seems to me, he knew which of us really wasn't interested that day in getting drunk in the Holy Ghost because he came right up to me, just like I was Wayne right here, and pulled me up. And he said, son, have you ever been drunk in the Holy Ghost? Now, I tried to give him a little misdirection and said, well, you know, I'm I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. And he said, no, no. (laughs) I'm talking slap happy, fall on the ground, out for hours, drunk in the Holy Ghost. Now, I thought about lying, but I was in a sanctuary, and all the youth that we were going to be counseling were sitting behind us, and I thought, this is not a good way to counsel, to start off a relationship by a lie. So I said to him, "Um, no, no, sir, I haven't. 
And immediately he put his hand on my head and, and started to pray. And, and all those in the whole congregation, if you've ever been in a Pentecostal church or in one in Mexico perhaps or some other place, know all of a sudden they were praying and my head was going left and right. I thought seriously about taking a dive and just going down and saying, let's just get this over with. But I didn't. I held strong. And finally... He seemed to lose interest. Finally, he seemed to know I didn't quite have enough faith to be drunk. And so he, he kind of, he walked off and I just slowly stepped back to where I was. But as I've thought about that particular story, and as I've thought about even my upbringing, and I don't want to speak for all of Pentecostalism, I will just speak for my own experience, I realized that I never felt like Christ was enough that I always felt like there was something more that I needed to do to be right with God, that my, my value and my meaning weren't yet quite right, that I needed to either speak in tongues or I, I needed to be able to, to raise my hands or I needed to be able to get drunk in the Holy Ghost. And until I did those things, then I wasn't really going to be accepted by Christ. Now, I, I knew the Scripture. I, I knew that Paul said that you're already all right with Christ once Christ has claimed you. But I didn't really believe it. Now that's just my story. But my guess is if I were to go around to each of you, almost all of you would have your own story about why it is that you struggle with really having all of your identity in Christ. Why is it that you don't quite feel sufficient enough for God? It might be a parent that you had when you were growing up for whom you never seemed to quite be able to satisfy. Maybe it's a spouse who always made you know in subtle or non-subtle ways that you weren't quite right. Maybe it's your own faith tradition that taught you that in some way you still needed to do a few more things in order to really be accepted by God. Maybe it's a lost job, a divorce, a broken dream, something that tells you things aren't quite right. Maybe it's the media, quite frankly. I mean, today we have the Super Bowl, right? And the only thing bigger than the Super Bowl game are the Super Bowl commercials. And they will tell you, many of them, I am certain of it, that things will be right for you. You will be accepted. Everything will be good if you just get the right makeup or the right car or the right beer. Bud Light, I'm sure. And all of those things, perhaps even just in your own head, some old story, all of those are old stories that make it difficult for you to believe the new story that Paul is talking about in this passage that says all of those old voices, those old stories have been nailed to the cross. And you are now living in the new story a new life of Christ where your value and your meaning and your identity don't come from any of those things but come only from Christ. Someone has said we are supposed to live our lives as if they are intertwined now with the resurrected Christ. Now that is good and right. But again, the hard part is really believing that. And if I were to ask you, how many of you 
think that that's right, that your identity and your value and meaning are supposed to come from Christ and Christ alone, you would raise your hand, you would say, absolutely. But I am quite certain that at least 90% of you, if I asked you, do you really believe that? Are you able to live into that new story? Most of you would say, we struggle with that. And if we want to be a different kind of community, we have to do more than just tell people that they have a new story in Christ. We have to be able to allow them to experience it. And so how do we do that? Well, I think very much like last Sunday, what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, not just what is Paul saying it, but how is he saying it? How is he describing these things? In verses 8 through 12, I think the most prominent word we see there is Christ, but there's another word that comes up second most. Do you remember what that word was? Yes, someone doesn't want to actually say it, they're just mouthing it. Circumcision. Now that's a little bit awkward for mixed company or for non-mixed company. But it's the image that Paul gives to us. And there are a couple of reasons, it seems to me, why Paul gives us that image. One of them, of course, is simply for the fact that it speaks to the new story. That when a, when a young Israelite baby was born, a male, that he was circumcised, and that that was God saying, you are a child of the covenant. I have claimed you. You are now a part of a new story. But the other part of it, it seems to me, is simply that it is an image that evokes some kind of emotion for many of us. It's more than just saying, hey, you have a new life. It gives us an image, as uncomfortable or awkward as it may be, it elicits an emotional response. And one of the things that I think Pentecostals do a much better job than we cerebral Presbyterians, is understanding that you cannot just think your way to change. You cannot just think your way to actually believing that you are a part of a new story, that you have to get your emotion, your body in some way involved to begin practicing what that actually means, that we have to feel it as well. But not only does he bring up circumcision, what's the other image he brings up? He brings up baptism. Now, baptism, again, is a sign that you are a child of the covenant. But have you ever thought about the fact that Paul or that God could easily have just had baptism where, God, where he just comes in and says, you're a child of the covenant? But what do you always have to have when you have a baptism? Water. Why is that? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but one of them is simply because of the fact that you have to do what with water? You have to touch it, and you can even hear water at times. And it, it engages all, it engages more of your senses, more than just your mind, more than just kind of listening and hearing those words. When you go and you touch the water, or you hear the water, or you see the water on a child, it allows you to experience what baptism is. And it allows you, it seems to me, to experience what this new story is. Not just hear it, not just think, wow, I'm supposed to be a part of this new story, but I just don't feel it. No, to begin to practice it, to feel it. And that's why... This baptismal font is right out here, right in the middle of the way. Now, hopefully, as some have said, the fire marshal doesn't come in and have a problem with that. But I want you to know that that's right there in order to get into your way. 
and that in that bowl there is water. And one of the things that will come from now on is that that font will either be there or it'll be there or it'll be right up here someplace, but it will be so that you can actually see it because it's important. And when you're leaving this place, I would encourage you to go and to feel the water. It isn't magic, but it is a helpful reminder as you feel that water to say, I am a part of a new story. My identity is in Christ not in any of those old stories that I will hear as soon as I leave this place. To feel, to touch, to know that your story is a part of Christ's story. Which brings us, of course, to the Lord's Supper. And this is yet one more opportunity that we have to not just think about the new story, but to experience the new story. What do we do? We get to see it. We get to touch it. We get to taste it. You may, if you have a good sniffer, even be able to smell it. All of those things which embrace all of who we are so that we can begin to actually practice what it means to be a part of a new story. And as strange as it may sound, we are ingesting. You are eating the new story so that it gets in your blood, if you will. More than just thinking isn't that nice. Now some people, and no one here yet has said this, and that's why I want to say it now before you do. Some people say, you know what, I wish we didn't take communion so often because it loses its specialness. I want you to know, communion is not supposed to be special. It is supposed to be formative. It is supposed to shape you. In a week and a half, a week from Friday, there will be many of you who will go out with your loved ones to a special Valentine's dinner. Right? Okay, well, some of you are going to be in trouble. I will go to a special Valentine's dinner. But anyone who has been married for more than a year can tell you this. What really forms their relationship with their spouse or their loved one is not that one special dinner, but the 364 other dinners that they have. That that is really what forms them, not some special dinner. And I want you to know that communion is not some special time for you to simply look back and say, isn't that nice that Jesus died for us and that now we have a new story? It is supposed to form you and shape you. And we as Presbyterians and as Protestants even have to get out of just intellectualizing our faith and begin to actually experience it and realize that it's here to shape who we are. Sisters and brothers in Christ, I've said again and again in this time in Colossians that we are supposed to practice our faith here so that we can go out and practice our faith out in the world. What you are doing here is you are practicing the faith. When you touch the waters, when you eat of the bread, when you drink of the cup, you are practicing what it means to actually live in the story, not just think about the new story, but live into it. And I promise you, when you go out from this place, there will be those old stories that will keep coming up outside of you and inside of you. So let us practice even 
now. By touching of the waters. By eating of the bread. By tasting of the cup. That we might not just know that we are a part of the new story of Christ. But that we might believe it with all of our being. May it be so. Amen.